You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. All right, hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he always looks on the bright side of life. We doop, we doop, we doop, we doop. It's Mr. <laughs> Jeff McLarge. Well, you know what they say, life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Anyway, um, hey, man, how you doing? Oh, outside of life being a piece of shit when I look at it. <laughs> uh, it's good. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I uh, we I was over at my friend's house the other night and we were talking about something that you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yes. We were talking about the Star Wars holiday special. Ah, uh, yes. And the Celebration of now, Life Day. Yeah. Now, I have like no less than three copies of that, either in physical or digital mm-hmm. format. Honestly, I, as of this recording, I have never, I've never watched it. Oh. I've, you know, I've seen bits of it. I get the just, but I've never seen like the whole thing. And my friend Bob says to me, he "Goes, you've never seen the Star Wars holiday special?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I totally just said that like a minute ago. Why are you questioning me? I've never seen it." I, it's it's funny, you know. That's like a weird conversational thing that I catch myself doing. It's like the check the I'm not a robot button, you know, like ver- <laughs> it's a capture, <laughs> like, like, verify that you really haven't seen this by answering the exact same question, rephrased it a different way. Again, are you sure you haven't seen it? Yes, I'm absolutely sure I haven't seen it. Really? You haven't seen it? No, I've never seen it, you know, and, and uh, I don't know what the expected answer is. Oh, no, wait, I did actually sit down and watch the Star Wars holiday yeah. special on DVD one day. Oops, it must have slipped my mind. Or when people say like, like, oh, I've never watched the Star Wars holiday special. What do you mean you never watched the Star Wars holiday special? What do I mean? <laughs> I mean, if you were to write out a list of all the things I've seen in my lifetime, the Star Wars holiday special would not appear on that list. How do I break this down any further for you? Well, I've never seen the Star Wars holiday well, special. Well, so as someone, as a writer, you know, as a writer yeah. and, and literature enthusiast, it, we're always looking for the subtext. So it's not what you say, it's what you infer by what you say that's important. So, so hmm, never watch the Star no, Wars holiday special. No, it's what I special. imply. It's what you infer. Oh, yes. That... That I know, that at the I very know. least. So, hmm, Bill says, I have never seen the Star Wars holiday special. But what he means is the agonies of life stretch out long before him. And only then, through the attainment of this strange goal that everyone seems to think is important, can he find life's fulfillment by watching a clearly coke-addled Carrie Fisher sing a Life Day <laughs> song that may have well have been written by a computer that was also full of cocaine. <laughs> so that's the subtext to that question so that's what we ask what, what do you mean that's what we mean well I mean I've never seen the Star Wars Hollywood. oh literalist eh yep yep sorry well I mean I don't think you really require any further information about that <laughs> there's gonna be a quiz at the end I would have watched a Star Wars holiday special but I was too busy writing out a poem about man's inhumanity to man and I was <laughs> caught up in the moment Wookiee's inhumanity to Wookiee 
Uh, <laughs> well, uh, well, what did you know think it, now that you've seen? You have laid eyes on the majesty that is the Star Wars Holiday Special. I still haven't seen it, Joe. Oh, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've seen clips and I've seen like documentary about the making of it. You know, whenever I had COVID, that probably would have been a good time to sit down and watch it because I had nothing else to do. Well, you were probably already in pain, so it's not like it would have you would have felt bad <laughs> afterwards. All right, here's here's my pinky promise to you. Next ten day long respiratory infection I get, I'll be watching the Star Wars. Holiday. Sounds great. All right, so this is uh, going to be the week beginning January the second. Goodness me! But before we go into our show, I do have my very popular and always well received trivia question. Hey Jeff. Hey Bill. I uh, I know you're a car guy, I so this is a. I'm a car trivia guy for sure. Yep. Yep. This is a car trivia question for you. So, what car company unveiled the or was the first to sport the V8 engine? All right, and they were also the same company to have the fully enclosed cabin for the driver and passengers. Ah, yes. Innovators, though. Innovators, yes. Them guys, yeah. Now every car's got a, got an enclosed cabin. See that? Right. People just the, follow along. Yep, and the V8 engine has gone the way of the the five cent cigar. So it's true. What do you mean they don't have a V8 engine? <laughs> they don't have a V8 engine, Bill? Really? No, they don't. <laughs> All right. So uh, this is the week beginning January the 2nd, and I believe it's your turn to start. January the 2nd, 1906. Speaking of inventions, uh, Willis yep. Carrier receives a U.S. patent for the world's first practical air conditioner. Hold on. What do you mean? Like up until then, they only had impractical air conditioners? Yeah. So his was the first to, to use an enclosed system that didn't have to keep being fed with a gas to keep the air cold. So there were, okay. there were some really dangerous ammonia based air conditioners that had been rolled out, but they were horrific fire hazards and his is <laughs> not. So carries air conditioner, the, the 1905 invention uses Freon as its expansion gas that cools the air around it. That can then be blown into a room. The air conditioners <laughs> that we use today are still built on carriers designs. Yeah, I don't think we use Freon anymore, though. Uh, no, we we used R2. I know this now because I just bought an air conditioning system for my bloody house. Up until 2008, at least in New Hampshire, you could refill air conditioners with R22 Freon. Now you can't. Okay. Now you have to use some other gas that's not R22 Freon, leading to the fact that I had to purchase a new air conditioning system for my house. Right. Freon was, that's like an ozone depleting chemical, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's an ozone depleting chemical, chlorofluorocarbon, I believe. But other than that, it's an inert gas. It's not flammable. It's not poisonous. It doesn't break down into carbon monoxide and kill you or anything like that. So I live in the house that I grew up in and we never had air conditioning uh, in this house uh, growing up. And I moved out of here and I moved into an apartment. I was on the third floor And I honestly thought that I could get away with not having an air conditioner. Right. And that lasted, I moved in there June 1st. That lasted 48 hours before (laughs) I ran out and bought an air conditioner. And then whenever I moved back in here in 2007, whenever I moved back in here, I'm like, oh my God, mom, how did you live in this house for your entire, you know, adult life without an air conditioner? It is hotter than Satan's Uh, I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound ageist, but I don't. But, like, our considerably older population who didn't have maybe access to inexpensive air conditioning 
when the same way that we do. I don't know how they managed it either. Maybe that was one of the things that led to like prohibition or the repeal of prohibition or people machine gunning <laughs> each other in the street in the summertime, but I don't know how they did it either. That's one of the reasons they probably live so long is that half of their insides are only partially cooked. What do you mean you don't have an air conditioner? Right, exactly. Uh, so speaking of things that are destroying the environment, <laughs> January the 3rd, 1888, a guy by the name of Marvin Chester Stone of Washington, D.C., patents his invention, the drinking straw. Oh, I, I, w- uh, I wonder what the original drinking straws were made of in 1888, because they, they clearly weren't extruded plastic, because that didn't exist yet. No, no, no. Uh, his straw was a substitute for the natural drinking straw, which were typically made out of ryegrass. The big problem there is that when you put a ryegrass straw into a liquid, they kind of degenerate pretty quickly. Yeah, you know? right. Adding a, what they're saying here, a grassy flavor to drinks. Oh, which sure. Doesn't sound, yeah, it doesn't sound good at all. No, yeah. Nothing like a handful of like freshly cut grass in my beer. Yeah. Why are you drinking beer with a straw well, no, anyway? I'm just saying crazy. in general. I don't drink beer with a straw. I'm not an 18-year-old. What do you mean you don't drink beer with a straw? <laughs> so now I don't remember when about it started, but there was like a huge backlash from the environmental movement about you know how drinking straws, you know, it's plastic, it's microplastics, right. and they don't degenerate yeah. into the garbage fills yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. You find them in the ocean and all that stuff. So yeah, I see the pictures every now and then where there's a, like a sea turtle that's got a, a, a drinking straw like jammed in its nose. My daughter had me get for Christmas. This is like a two years ago, a yep. collapsible metal drinking straw, and I bought because I'm a father. I'm like, do you want a collapsible yep. metal drinking straw? All right. Um, to me, drinking out of that thing is like walking around with a toothbrush in your mouth. I don't do that either because as a young child, I was told never put anything that could poke the back of your throat in your mouth and walk around with it that way. Right. right? That's how you die. So I got one for her and she used it for a while and then I, it disappeared. I asked her, Meg, where's the collapsible drinking straw that I have to spend an extra 15 minutes washing and using pipe cleaners to clean out because the washing machine, the dishwasher doesn't get inside of it. And she goes, I threw that thing away. It got molded. <laughs> <laughs> so now there's a stainless steel one in the landfill. So you know what I've done instead of straws is uh, something I've been doing most of my adult life is I don't drink with a straw. <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. I just put my lips over the top of the glass and sip. Yeah. It's much easier. Yeah. I, like the only time I ever do straws is whenever I get fast food to go. You know, that's the only time I ever use a straw. But whenever I'm in a restaurant, the waitress puts the straw down. I never open it. I haven't used straws in restaurants well, it, in, in, yeah, in years. And it's, and it's not because I'm a part of some environmental movement. It's just that I'm an adult and I don't use a straw. And I will say this. You have to you have to do it with if you buy a drink at a fast food place because the cups yeah. are not designed to be sipped out of like a rational, normal human being is. They're wider at the right. top than they are in anywhere else. Whatever you have in there just sloshes all over the goddamn place. Right. Yes. So you need a straw. So you can fire hose the back of your throat with Diet Coke when you're trying to eat a filet for your sandwich at McDonald's or something. Like, who am I, Linda Lovelace? <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on to the fourth. What do we got? January 4th, 1903. A Topsy the Elephant is electrocuted by her owners at Luna Park, Coney Island. And it's Jesus. filmed by the Edison Manufacturing Movie Company. Oh, my God. What, what a, a snuff film with an elephant? What the hell? Yeah, it's a snuff film of, of, of an elephant, and it's also like reverse advertising. So 
generally we don't bring up things about animal cruelty or or no. terrible things like this on Twibley. However, now why would they do this? So they did this for a couple of reasons. One is that Topsy don't, had been. Don't even tell me because it's fun. It's it was not fun. Topsy had been injured, I think, by being hit by the circus train. It broke its hip, so it couldn't. It was in ter- terrible pain, as I understand it. Okay. So Topsy the elephant was chosen for murder by the Luna Park Coney Island people and Thomas Edison, probably Thomas Edison himself, because at yep. the time he was locked in a battle with Westinghouse Electric over which standard of electricity delivery was going to become the one that the nation followed. Edison uh-huh. liked direct current, which if you've ever picked up a battery and put fingers on both terminals, you don't get electrocuted by, so it's very safe. Yep. Or alternating current, which was the Westinghouse and Nikolai Tesla version. If you uh-huh. plug something in and rip the cord off and hold both ends of the electrical wire that's left over, you will get electrocuted. It's dangerous. It's also a lot more powerful. Yep. So to demonstrate how dangerous alternating current was flowing into your house, Edison yep. made a movie of the electrocution of Topsy the Elephant using Westinghouse electricity. And he put it out in this couple of cinemas that he had in, in, in New York to try and sway public opinion. And make people sick. And, Jesus. and make people sick and apparently very angry, especially George Westinghouse, who was super angry and tried to run alternating current directly into Thomas Edison's ears at that point. Uh, now, but now don't we use AC in, uh, alternating currents in houses? Yeah, because it travels DC attenuates over a, a relatively short distance over copper wire and alternating right. current doesn't. So you have to keep putting amplifiers in a DC line to get the current from one place to the end point. And even then there's a theoretical limit to how far it can travel without being regenerated and added to Alternating current doesn't have that problem. Alternating current can travel a tremendous distance over copper wires without attenuating and losing its power, which makes it suitable for electrifying cities and houses and schools and things. And apparently elephants. Uh, I just remember whenever we were kids and ACDC became the popular band, and that's how it was taught to me. What's the difference between AC and DC? It's like DC is batteries. AC is the electricity in your house. I was like, okay, simple enough. I can remember that. Yep. And it was apparently it was like 6,600 volts is what, is what it took to zap good old uh, Topsy into oblivion. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't have 660 volts in your house. I think everything tops out at 120 except yeah. for your dryer. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's, and that's 220. So right. pretty much, you know, any elephants in your neighborhood are safe. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. <laughs> They at least know, like, the upper limit, the elephant limit with voltage, right, <laughs> that they can put through your neighborhood. You have a lot of elephants in your neighborhood. You know they're not running 6,600 volts. All right. So January the 5th, January the 5th, 1972. Oh, here we go again, Jeff. U.S. President Richard Nixon signs a bill for NASA <laughs> for NASA to begin research on a manned space shuttle. Yep, that's it. That's our new goal. Twibley is here to rehabilitate the image of Richard Milhouse Nixon. <laughs> yeah, it's a, at some point, there's like an alternate universe, Twibley, where you and I are doing this show. It doesn't take an, two hours to get a show together. And also, yep. all they find are the negative things about Nixon. <laughs> and he's one of the most beloved presidents in that universe. <laughs> so, yeah, so here it is, 1972, maybe about nine years before it actually happened. Nixon signs a bill for what ultimately became the long-running space shuttle program. 
So what was the first space shuttle launch? I think it was 81, right? It was 81 was either when they they test flew the they test glided the Enterprise or they launched the Columbia, but I don't remember which one. Which one was oh, 81? I just pulled I just pulled it up. It was uh April of 81. NASA launched the first space shuttle mission, the STS, which is the Space Shuttle Columbia. Yeah. Oh, yep. okay. So um did you ever get to see any of the like disused space shuttles? No. Like, have you ever been anywhere for that? No, I mean, they, I mean they, they don't show up in, like, the flea markets and stuff that I go to. And, <laughs> you know, it's not like I walk around and I'm, like, picking through and it's like, oh, it's like a keyboard from a Dell computer. And, oh, look, there's a wrench. And over here is some dented canned dog food from an unknown age or origin. Oh, my God, it's the Space Shuttle Challenger. No, it's nothing like it's that. Space, no, no, well, you're not going to see the Space Shuttle Challenger. Oh, yeah, yeah. That would, uh, that would be in the scrap pile. This would be, like, the Atlantis yeah. that would be there. Yep. I got to see the space shuttle Atlantis. Uh, on one of my many trips to Florida, I visited the Kennedy Space Center. Right. Actually, um, my friend's daughter works at the Kennedy Space Center oh. now. Yeah, that's really interesting. But they have this like big kind of like wall of a movie that they show you. It takes up like the whole mall, uh, the whole wall. And they're talking about the space shuttle and all that. And they have it set up so beautifully that when the movie ends the curtain goes up and you're looking like straight at the space shuttle Atlantis. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's pretty big, but it's not ridiculously big. You know, Yeah. that was really a really cool kind of like space program that we had. And I believe it was under Obama's administration where they kind of like pulled the plug on it. It was meant to be yeah. sunset and replaced with another reusable single stage to orbit uh, sure. device. And then the private rocket companies kind of got into the act, and now we use contract rockets for single-stage-to-orbit lifts to the International Space Station. So, Right. We were piggybacking with the Russians for a little while. Yep. We will put your things onto the space station. You, uh, you can. Yeah. We will put them there for you. So now, now we're just basically choosing our supervillain. Uh, can- <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Well, it's, I mean, there's there. a cost-effective element to it, too. There was a race to replace the, the shuttle, but it, the key phrase was it had to be single-stage to orbit. For a while, there were two competing versions. One was called the Lady Slipper, and that was Lockheed Martin. And the other one was, it looked like, it actually looked like the capsule. Uh, and it would do vertical takeoff uh, and vertical takeoff and landing. And that one was about to get approved. This is like in 1991. And on a yep. test landing, it landed and one of its telescoping legs failed and it tip- topped over and exploded. So that yeah. ended up getting ru- out of the running and they picked the, the Lockheed Martin Lady Slipper, but it never got built. I don't know why it, it never got out of the drawing board phase. And then it's, it started to be practical to use better designed multi-stage rockets or single-stage to orbit rockets that were government produced and now that they are privately produced and have... The technology advanced enough to do like their own vertical landings and things. It's much more yeah. cost effective. So that was where the space shuttle ended up going to, because oh. ultimately these single stage rockets become reusable. Sure. Yeah. Those uh, Elon Musk, they are the SpaceX rockets that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The ones that just like land on a dime at ninety miles an hour. Just right. Zoom. Yep. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing how fast that technology progressed from 1972 with, hey, I'd like to see a, a reusable space shuttle to now where, you know, can't even get words around how awesome it is to watch those SpaceX rockets just land. 
What I, it's insane. What I want to see is Elon Musk from SpaceX. Like all of a sudden, he says to somebody, like everybody in the United Nations. So you like my rockets, right? And now that I have this giant robot gorilla and all the element <laughs> X from my Arctic base that you don't know about, I want one jillion dollars or I'm going to blow up the Eiffel Tower with a doomsday laser. And then they say, what do you mean, robot gorilla? <laughs> what do you mean, robot gorilla? Yeah, exactly. You've never seen a robot gorilla before? <laughs> <laughs> one more thing, too, is... Uh, while I was at Kennedy Space Center, they had like the capsule that like the Apollo missions would return to Earth in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are really small. Oh now, yeah. Now I drove across country a number of times, and I drove to St. Louis a number of times, folded up into like a cannonball position in the back of a Ford F one fifty. And let me tell you, that seems like a day at the spa compared to this Apollo shot. Uh, capsule that they came back to earth in yeah you pretty much wear the apollo capsule you yeah. don't even ride in it all right moving on to the sixth <laughs> from going into space to making a quote-unquote live album uh, january 6 1976 peter frampton's seminal record the best record he ever put out the most mm-hmm. popular record he ever did the record that took him from like on the cover of Teen Beat Magazine and sort of made him a superstar in the guitar-playing club of rock and roll in the 1970s, Frampton Comes Alive is released. Frampton Comes Alive is a great bunch of concerts mushed together in a studio to make a a live album. Yep. (laughs) With crowd effects added in. Yeah, a quote-unquote live album. Right. Uh, Just about as live as Kiss Alive 1. Yeah, uh, I'm sh- I'm sure there are some live elements to it, but a- there's a lot of studio stuff going on in there. Well, I know that it, if you listen to um, "Do You Feel Like I Do," which is the yep. arguably the best song on the record, it's certainly the one that gets the most airplay still yep. from that record. And um, you know why too, right? Why? That's a DJ has to take a piss song. Oh yeah, DJ. Yeah, <laughs> DJ has to run to the bathroom. Like it's going to be a few <laughs> minutes. Yeah, that song's long. You've got that whole like last third. You know, the doom, doom, doom with the, the bass yeah. line that feeds into the what becomes the long guitar solo. And all the way through the song, you can hear. Woo. Yeah. Like one or two people clapping and hooting the whole friggin' time that the song runs. Yeah. If you've ever been to a concert, you never hear that. You can't hear that no. anywhere. No, ma- no. no microphone will pick that up. That's de- definitely a couple of people in the studio like, this record needs something. <laughs> yeah. it needs, we need to show that it's live. What can we do? Let's get two guys to just clap like they're at a they golf match. They were talking about that. I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about some of like the Kiss quote unquote live albums that you know have definitely been sweetened up in the studio. And he goes, what concert have you ever been to that people are just going balls out crazy screaming through the entire song? Never. Right. You don't yeah. go to concerts like that. They don't exist. But that's how the Kiss Live albums are. Right. Well, it's like, yeah, they existed when the Beatles did it. Yeah. That's the only concerts. And the Beatles were like, you know what? This is probably going to cause problems. We're not going to do this anymore. We can't even hear ourselves play. Yeah. That said, yeah. you know, again, the live segments that make up this record are Peter Frampton playing live with his band in front of an audience. But all of the other foolishness is added to it. It's still a great record, though. Sure. And Do You Feel Like I Do is a, arguably my favorite of Frampton songs. So Yeah. It definitely put him on the map. He wasn't a big star 
prior to that. That song like put him on the map for sure. Right. And then two years later, he was in Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which made his career hit the wall faster than a blind person playing High Lie. <laughs> yeah, didn't he? He started with what the band Humble Pie, right? And that was the, wasn't I, that the band I, that he was in? I believe uh, it is. I I think it is. Yeah, I I couldn't name a Humble Pie song if I had to. Ooh, so. hold on. Yeah, if you're gonna know any song from Humble Pie, you're gonna know Thirty Days in the Hole. Nope. I kind of know that song. I, uh, Mr. Big did a cover of it. I've never which, heard 30 Days in a Hole, Bill. What do you mean you never heard 30 Days in a Hole? <laughs> what I mean is life is a never-ending series of disappointments, and that's <laughs> illustrated by my inability to understand that there's a Humble Pie song called 30 Days in a Hole. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm over on Spotify, and I just pulled up a, a Humble Pie's Greatest Hits, and there's literally nothing on it. <laughs> is it just an it's just an empty record jacket? Oh man, there's nothing in here. There's a picture of Peter Frampton on the cover. Look at that. All right, moving on to the seventh, December the seventh, nineteen ninety seven. The reclusive Prince, or at that time the artist formerly known as Prince, makes a very rare appearance for an interview on the Rosie O'Donnell show. I did just watch this interview as we were setting up the show, and. Yep. Look, man, props to Prince for doing this. He couldn't be less uncomfortable if his clothes were made of fire ants. <laughs> yeah, you could tell he didn't want to be there. Prince was, like, notorious for not doing interviews. Yeah. And let me tell you, if you've ever seen this, and I know you have because you just did. I did. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell didn't make it any better for him. No. She's the sort of person who asks questions like, so you've never seen the holiday Christmas holiday special, the Star Wars holiday <laughs> special, and you say, "No, I've never seen the Star Wars holiday special." And they go, "Really? You've never seen the Star Wars? Hol- you mean you've never seen it?" That's exactly her interview style, which yeah. the artist formerly known as Prince I, could very easily have turned into the artist formerly known as Prince, currently known as Inmate One Eight Six Nine Four Three Four for felony <laughs> strangulation on live television. Because the interview, in and of itself, not only was it awkward, it was like it was like aggressively dumb, and you yeah, could see. On Prince's face, like, oh, these are the dumbest f***ing questions that anybody would ever ask. And I'm getting them one after the other and making this stupid plastic slingshot thing. Like, get me the f*** out of here. Freaking Rosie O'Donnell had the world right there. And she had a very popular show. My mom it was It was popular, yeah. My mom liked it, And too. here she is. She's getting an interview with probably at the time the hardest person to get an interview. Like you had your choice between like Prince and Barbara Streisand. She chose Prince. Here she is with, with this great opportunity to finally interview this notorious person that doesn't want to be interviewed. And she's throwing it away. He was going through the whole, you know, BS with his record company at the time. So he wasn't using the name Prince. He was just calling himself the artist or the artist formerly known as Prince. Or generally, and like on that interview, he just points at the cover. That's me. Yeah. That's my yeah. name. With the symbol. So she started calling him Taff Cap, which was like an anagram for the artist. The artist formerly formerly known, known. Yeah. As Prince. And he goes, the, the artist is fine. And then at one point in the interview, she says to him, so Taffy, you know, short for Taff Cap. And he just looks at her and he says, do you know what Taffy rhymes with? And she's like, uh, it rhymes with Laffy, Jaffy, Waffy. And he says, no, it rhymes with goodbye. And he stands up to leave. <laughs> yeah. That was the second time he did that in that interview, too. The first time was when she introduced Taft Cap. And he's like, nope, sounds like goodbye. 
He <laughs> <laughs> should he should have just taken off. Anyway, yep. that was terrible, and it's a shame because he didn't do a lot of interviews and. He should have got together with his other elusive interview partner and friend in the Jehovah's Witness conventions there, uh, Michael, Michael Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. I remember, well, like, for when, remember when Michael Jackson was trying to rehab his image when he was married to um, Elvis Presley's daughter? Yeah, yeah, Priscilla. Priscilla uh, not Priscilla. Lisa Marie. Lisa Marie Presley, yep. Lisa Marie Presley, And, yeah. and she was, he was, they were interviewed by Barbara Walters on, like, uh, primetime TV. Do you remember that fiasco? I, I remember it happening, yeah. I watched that when it was on and there's a bit where talking about how important the music is to him and she just keeps asking what it's like to be married to Lisa woman yeah <laughs> it was awful it was it, it reminded me a lot of like that kind of things yeah what do you mean you're married to a girl <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> all right let's go on to the eighth wrap up the week uh, january 8th 1800 bill 1800 okay the wild boy of Aveyron. He's about a 12-year-old kid who's discovered in southern France, living for seven years in the wild as a feral kid. He was later christened Victor of Aveyron. Is this the, like, the fabled raised by wolves kind of thing? It's, it's kind of one of those stories which you don't hear a lot about anymore, but they used to be, they used to come around every now and then. Yeah. You know, raised by wolves, raised by bears, Mowgli from the Jungle Book, or Nell from that movie Nell with uh, yeah. Nell. <laughs> That's with um, <laughs> Jodie Foster. Foster. Right? You ever seen uh, Nell? I, I've i never seen Nell, Bill. What do you mean you've never seen Nell? <laughs> no, I've never seen it. Have you ever seen Lucan? All right. You're just making stuff up now. No, What's Lucan? There was a TV show in the 70s, right, called Lucan, where some scientists went out into the wilds of Montana and found a kid who was raised by wolves. And That was a show? That was a show. And not only because it was the 1970s, the kid was rehabilitated. He was, it was Lucan because- the first thing he did was start to like make noises. I think it was combing his hair, and the people who were who were trying to bring him into society were like, "Lou can, Lou can, Lou can comb his hair," and his name became Lou oh Can. God, it was not good. And as an adult, Lou Can and the scientists that brought him in from the wild would go and solve crimes. I was just about to say, let me guess, they opened up a detective agency. <laughs> they, they go off and solve crimes. It was not a good show. It was like the Hulk, only a hundred million times dumber. You know, now that you're like giving me these details, I kind of think my brother used to watch that, but I don't know. I'm gonna have to ask him what I see. It was see not a good show. So All anyway, right. the feral kid, the yep. feral kid stories have been around for a long time. Every we haven't had one, you know, in the last probably fifty years. But I remember them coming up and around in, in news stories that I read that were older news stories when I was a kid in, like, unsolved mysteries books and things. Well, they should have got Luke Han to solve the mystery. That's right. He was too busy combing his hair. <laughs> Luke Han solved this mystery. Luke Han. Luke Han watched the holiday special. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. All right. January the 2nd, 1967, the very lovely and beautiful Tia Car- I'm going to say her name. Probably wrong. Tia Carrera. That is correct. That probably best known. Probably only known. Probably. <laughs> Tia Carrera was in the Wayne's World movie. She was uh, Wayne's girlfriend. She was also one of the villain characters in the James Cameron movie, True Lies. She got into a fist fight in a speeding driverless limousine with Jamie Lee Curtis. That is that is probably correct. I've seen True Lies. That does not ring any bells, though. You don't remember? She was the girlfriend of the <laughs> terrorist guy. Oh, my God. Did it to me again, you son of a bitch. What do you mean you don't remember? Yeah. 
Yeah, so she was like a, a struggling actress, and she got a huge break with the Wayne's World movies. But, yeah, you don't really see her in a lot too much after that. She kind of came and went really fast. Mm. Moving on to the third. January 3rd, 1892, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and The Cimmerillion, is born in, he's actually born in Blumfontein, South Africa, to his family who were British, living in South Africa at the time. This is, I think, before the Boer Wars. Do you think he knew Dave Matthews? I don't think he knew Dave Matthews. I'm pretty sure he didn't know know, uh, Charlize Theron either, (laughs) considering it was 1892. But ended up in England as a professor at Oxford. And one day on the back of some student's exam, he found himself writing in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And thus began effective literature with a capital L that was non-pulp fantasy literature. He's the guy that invented it. Yeah, he effectively invented the fantasy genre. Didn't it, well, I mean, there were pulp. There was pulp fantasy before he was publishing, but yeah. his stuff was not pulpy. It was literature. Like his stuff gets read and reread and examined and reexamined, and Robert Howard stuff doesn't. Right. But um, so, his stuff, his stuff is very interesting. I happened to, uh, I I took a Shakespeare class when I was in college in in the UK, and part of our class went to went through Oxford on our way to Stratford upon Avon, yep. and I went by the pub where. He and C.S. Lewis used to go and share stories with each other when C.S. Lewis was writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and those stories. And they would yeah. argue about storytelling and other things in that pub. My instructor at the time pointed it out to me and said he had been there when they had been arguing on a couple of occasions. And it was really interesting to watch the two of them sort of spar over effectively fantasy writing. He's like, what do you mean you never seen the Star Wars holiday special? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to January the 4th. Uh, here's an old, old gentleman. Uh, January the 4th, 1643, Jeff. Oh, man. All those years I haven't sent a card, Bill. What do you mean you haven't sent a card? Uh, Sir Isaac Newton. Now, Sir Isaac Newton will forever go down in history as fabled sitting underneath an apple tree, gets pegged in the head with a falling apple, and ergo discovers gravity. That's more of a fable than anything else. And also, giving Isaac Newton credit for, quote-unquote, discovering gravity and leaving out all the other amazing cuckoo bananas stuff he did certainly discredits Mr. Isaac Newton. Yeah, just about everything scientific that you are familiar with now that it hasn't come about in the last 50 years is pretty much Newtonian physics, right? All the way back to him inventing calculus. Like, he invented math. The math yeah. that made it hard to be in college. That's his fault. Right. Yeah, I brought up the fact that he like effectively in- invented calculus. And then you had told me a story. It was like to figure out something to do with wine. Yeah. So he was. Uh, so, so this is this is as I understand how calculus came to be. So you know, thanks a lot, wine. With the sorts of the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Yeah. Uh, he was buying wine for a wedding or a party or something. You could buy it two ways, right? So you could buy a, a cast that had a bung on oh, on the side, so on the one of the flat sides, and that would you could fill it all the way up with wine, and then you'd pull the bung out and you could look in and put your finger right into the hole and you'd touch wine. Or yep. the bung would be on the equator of the bowed out middle of the barrel, in which case. Right. You turn the barrel on its side, take the bung out, and you'd have to stick your finger way, way in or your hand all the way in 
like a few inches or more sometimes to touch the wine inside the cask. Yep. So it seems like there's probably less wine in that cask than there is if the bung is on the side and not the equator. And what he did was he figured out the volume of the barrel on the inside based on mathematics as opposed to let's see how much wine we can fit in here to determine that those wine barrels had the same amount or different amounts of wine in them. And he did it as a mathematical proof. And that is where calculus comes from. Of all bloody things, the most impractical math that I can imagine was an absolute practical problem solver. Thank you for simplifying it, or maybe you could simplify it. But anyway, uh, he also was the one that started like experimenting with diffracting light, which you would know as the prism, yep. like on the cover of Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, yeah. he's he figured out that light travels, uh, that there are different wavelengths of light. So that yeah. scale is, is him. He found some planets. He figured out orbital mechanics. He's an all-around guy who was way too smart for the... It's a good thing there was no, like, internet pornography when he was a uh, prime, because he never right. would have got anything done. Cause he, cause but like I said at the very added. beginning, poor guy is only remembered for getting hit in the head with an apple. Well, unless you're a calculus guy. And I'm not a calculus guy, but I still know that story. Yeah, the, yeah, the wine story is re- really doesn't travel well in grammar what school, I guess. is once you start really telling it, it's like, all right, I'm going to need a I'm gonna need a whiteboard and yep. some markers and some wine. Uh, so, <laughs> all right, moving on. January 5th, 1959. Technically a B-movie kind of actor, second banana actor, but super duper well-known for, if you see him, you know him. If you hear him, you also know him. Clancy Brown. Bill, you and I are our generation forward. Yep. Everyone knows him in one form or the other. I remember right. him in the movie Bad Boys as Viking. Yeah, he, yeah, he played Viking. Yeah, he right. was a... A motherfucker in that movie. I remember later on seeing him in the Shawshank Redemption as the the not the warden, but the warden's like yeah. right hand man. Yep. And he was a, a son of a bitch in that movie too. It's like you just get the impression that this guy is the biggest jerk in the world, but he's not because younger generations are going to know him as the voice of Mr. Crab on Mr. SpongeBob's, Crab's on SpongeBob SquarePants, right? Yeah. I was when my kids were little and 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 watching SpongeBob for the. F- first few times and i was sitting in the living room and yep. I'd, I'd hear his voice and i said it sounds like clancy brown it sounds like the guy from highlander it yeah. can't be the guy from highlander and it, it guess who it is it's clancy brown <laughs> as as mr krabs so my kids know him as a money obsessed crustacean <laughs> i know him as an unkillable kill machine that killed sean connery's character in the highlander he's also my favorite lex luthor of all lex luthors he was the voice of lex luthor in superman the animated series yes and and a couple of the movies too, and he I, he actually did it in um in the Lego Batman movie too. Yes, and he bears a striking resemblance to Triple H from the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> he does indeed. All right, so moving on to January the sixth, nineteen eighty four, in an alternate universe, she would be my girlfriend. I find her very attractive and very 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 funny. Saturday former Saturday Night Live actress Kate McKinnon. She was definitely one of the one of the more recent cast to almost always have a really funny character who's outside of lampooning a famous person like the one that the one that kept getting picked up by space aliens. Do you remember that sketch? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. That's that's one of my favorites where she's like, yeah, "It was pretty good." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's like, yeah, that's not what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kate McKinnon. She also she was the best thing in the uh, the twenty sixteen Ghostbusters. Taking on kind of the Harold Ramis type role of the yes. very uh, very mechanically oh. inclined and engineer style 
character. That movie's going to come back around in a couple of minutes. Oh, good. Yep. She did a movie with Mila Kunis. Oh, that's right. The Spy Who Dumped Me. The Spy Who Dumped Me. And I was very, very excited for it because I love Kate McKinnon. I, Like I said, I find her you know, yes. very attractive and very, 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 very funny. And Mila Kunis is both attractive and very funny. And that movie wasn't great. I wanted to like that movie and it wasn't great. I liked the trailer and then I never got to the part where I actually watched it as a movie. But she's no longer with Saturday Night Live and doing that show a huge disservice by by leaving. Um, But I I wish her luck. I hope she does great. Yes, me too. She definitely is someone who uh, in the right role is going to, she has the talent to like really knock it out of the park, given the right project. All right, moving on to the 7th. January 7th, 1928, American writer William Peter Blatty, whose name you may not know. And I don't. Uh, in casual in casual conversation. You really don't know who William Peter Blatty is? <laughs> um, no, actually, I don't. Who is that? Uh, he is the uh, the writer of the book and the screenplay for The Exorcist. Oh, I should have known that, but I didn't. Okay. Yes, yes. so The Exorcist is uh, a very Catholic horror movie. <laughs> yes, and, and very good way to put that. It's a very good way to put that, and, and it, your hero of the of the film is a window through jump, a uh, defenestrationing Catholic priest. Yeah. <laughs> but it really helps to be a Catholic for that movie to be scary, because for the rest of like non Catholics or like atheists, it's like, well, you know, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Is that really how you want to deal with this? By just yelling phrases from the, your book at it? Yeah. Well, like it we seems said, like that, a that tranquilizer mov- dart would do way, way, way more. Yeah. You know, that movie came out in 1973, so they were still in that like really weird part of Hollywood history where they had just broken out of the Hayes Code. Yeah. So like the, every director in the world was like, "All right, gloves are off." Right. Um. So anyway, the book came out two years earlier. In the book, which is quote unquote based on actual events, the I don't know if in the book the protagonist is a girl, is Reagan like that, but in the actual events, the, or the quote unquote actual events, the the subject was a boy, it was a th- uh, 11, 11 or twelve year old boy, right? And basically he was a little shit, and he would like throw temper tantrums and like throw plates around the room and stuff like that. So then like the people would come in the room and be like, yeah, the devil did that. You know, it's one of those <laughs> things where if you look back at it with like 2023's eyes, you look at it and say, how did anybody believe this? Shit? Right. You know, the early seventies was a very weird time in everything in American culture, in Hollywood, everything. It was just, Television. There was this show about a feral kid that used to comb his hair. <laughs> Lou can. Let's go solve crimes. <laughs> Wrapping up the birthdays, January the 8th, 1941. Somebody who I will refer to as the third funniest member of the Monty Python troupe, Graham Chapman. Oh, I think he's, depending on which sketch we're talking about, he definitely circles through that top three for me. Yeah. He's also the lead in... The Monty Python films, the first two, Life of Brian and The Holy Grail, that are more coherent storytelling films. Yeah, I'm and, a big fan of I'm a big fan of uh, the Meaning of Life because it was the first one that I saw. Right, and I'm always going to remember Graham Chapman as the the baby doctor. Oh, I mm-hmm. see you have the machine that goes. Bing! That tells us that your baby <laughs> is still alive. <laughs> yep. 
He was Brian of Nazareth in Life of Brian, and he was King Arthur in uh, The Quest for the Holy Grail. He was also yes. Yellowbeard in Yellowbeard, oh, I remember the that. last movie that he made, which is kind of okay. It's, it's funnier now than I remember it being when I saw it initially. Stumble, stumble, fall, fall, stumble, yeah, fall. Yeah, stagger, stagger, crawl, 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 and I've got to start all over again. Could you talk to me? Us, now, us Yellowbeards are never more dangerous than when we're dead. Too, aren't they? Hmm? Yes, Cheech, Cheech and Chong in that. Yes. And Madeline Kahn. And Madeline Kahn and John Cleese was in that too and yep. some others, yes. And as my mental picture, he doesn't look all that different from Clancy Brown now that I think about it. No, he doesn't. He looks like a very skinny Clancy Brown. Like yes. half of Clancy Brown. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, Jeff, uh, I actually don't really have a good segue into the next segment. <laughs> what do you mean you don't have a segue into the next segment? The worst song ever. Jeff, you ever hear a song and you're like, oh, I like this song. And then you hear it a bunch more times and then you're like, oh, my God, I'm so sick. How did I ever like this song? I'm so sick of it. Yes. Uh, yes. 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 A thousand times. Yes. This has okay. happened to me many times. Typically, how long do you think that would take? If How long would it take for a song that you like to get beaten to the ground that you don't like it? Anymore? Uh, that's that's a hard question. Because generally, if I seek out a song to listen to a bunch of times in a row, it never does that. But it's one, if I keep bumping into it, it can mm-hmm. take as few as 10 listens in the space of a couple of days Okay, that I don't pick, like that comes around on the radio. Or it could be like mandatory exposure. Like, for example, uh, the song that we talked about a few weeks back, American Music by yeah. the Violent Femmes. Um so so yeah, it can it can vary. That that song stopped growing on me as something I liked, and started growing on me as something I wanted a dermatologist to have a look at after about <laughs> three months. So the song I'm talking about here is a song by a band called Walk the Moon. Uh, because <laughs> <laughs> I know what song this is. Yeah, the way their band name is stylized, it's all capital letters. So yes. Walk the Moon, and the name of the song is Shut Up and Dance with Me. And let me tell you. I liked this song when I first heard it and hated it by the time the song ended. This song immediately aggravated me through its repetition. Did it really? Yeah, we're talking about Shut Up and Dance With Me. Here's the clip. We were bound to be together, bound to be together. She took my arm. I don't know how it happened. We took the front, she said. Oh, don't you dare look back. So, like, you know, I heard the the beginning of the song. The story of the song is uh, he's talking to this girl at the club, and she says, you know, shut up and dance with me. Right. And that happened to him. It was like a, a real event. And that kind of had happened to me when I was doing an event, Boston Comic Con. I was, like, talking with this girl, and she didn't say shut up and dance with me, but she said something along those lines. Uh, she was like, or you could just like dance with me. So whenever I heard the song, I was like, oh, that reminds me of that girl that I met at the uh, at Laugh Boston. Right. And then by the end of the song, I was like, I am done with this song. I am so done with it. <laughs> so the song came out in 2014. That was yep. the year that I bought my, or at least my 
Chevy Equinox. It was the first time that I had satellite radio and the first time that I had the, their alternative stations. Yep. And this song came around about every 90 minutes when I first bought that vehicle. Yep. And I remember in the sea of stuff that was on and how the novelty of, of it, I found myself like, yeah, this song's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really happy and fun. And wow. Eh, you know, and I would sort of look forward to it, like knowing it was about 90 minutes that this song should be coming around again. Like I could look forward yep. to it. And then I'd start singing along with it. And I'd think like, these lyrics are kind of dumb and really repetitive. But then 90 minutes would go by and I'd be like, oh, you know, it would come out of a bunch of like sad music or whatever. And then it would come out and be like, all right. And over this, the period of about two weeks, I would hear that, and I just changed the station. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was the end. So shut up and don't dance with me and get the hell off my radio. I, I should be so lucky. Like I said, I, I heard it for the first time. I had gone through this like little spell where I said I was going to start listening to what you call terrestrial radio, just mm-hmm. radio stations, just so I could be exposed to new music. And at the time, WBRU, which was the the lead alternative station, was still around. And I had heard a few songs on there that I actually really, really liked and pursued those artists. Mm -hmm. But Walk the Moon, dude, like I said, by the time the song ended, I was already sick of it. Yeah. I had a visual in my mind for what the band looked like. Mm -hmm. I had kind of pictured almost like a jam band with a real lot of members, like Rusted Root. Yep. No, that's not what they look like at all. They kind of look like a less tattooed, uh, less polished version of Maroon 5. <laughs> yes. I had never gone to hunt for the video because by the time I was sick of this song, I certainly wasn't going to go to YouTube to figure out who they were. Right. Until today. So today, I was before we recorded today, I was like, what do these guys even look like? And I assumed right. that they look like Maroon 5 because oh, they really? kind of sound like Maroon 5. And then I saw them and I thought, yeah, okay, except these guys look like they are so incredibly like uncool that that even the mm-hmm. outsiders would be like, yeah, you know what? Nah, we're, we're good. That's something else, too. Whenever I was watching, I was watching the video for Shut Up and Dance With Me, which yep. is not my style of video. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it's and not mine either. Like, they're, yeah, they're not going to sell me on their band with their with their video. Um No. But I was like, no, these guys don't look like rock stars at all. And I know times change and I know sounds change and and all that stuff. But they just don't look it to mm-hmm. me. Anyway, I did listen to a full album of theirs. I listened to their first album, which uh, their, their first self-titled album, which isn't bad. It's not bad music. Yep. It's just it's not entirely very interesting to me. It's it's harmless. How right. that? It's mostly harmless. Yeah, it's pop rock, right? It's so it's yes. not meant to, it's not meant to be deep or super thought provoking or anything. As I was listening to the song and watching the video, my eyes closed because I had to uh, yeah. after the first minute or so. And squint, squinting hard, squinting yeah. hard, like it's just fuzzy colors on the screen. I'm I'm listening. I'm like, this sounds like music I've heard before and that I liked. What? Yep. Where does this come from? What does this sound like? What? Like this sounds like something that I remember enjoying a long time. And it dawned on me. They sound a lot. I'm gonna say exactly because technology is different, beats are different, like expectations right. for pop music are different now. But they have a lot of resemblance to New Zealand's favorite export that isn't a Peter Jackson movie, Split Ends. And I thought, geez, this guy sounds like Neil Finn or Tim Finn. He sort of looks like Tim Finn. 
The music is poppy like Split Ends or Crowded House. Jeez. Yep. Maybe I like them more than I thought I would. <laughs> and I should have to go back and, and now like try and check out a whole record. Because as annoying as this song became for me over a period of a few weeks, I'm sure that One Step Ahead would have done that too. If I had had access to listening to it as often as I w- was exposed to this one mm-hmm. when Split Ends was flirting with popularity back in 1982. They list as their influences Talking Heads, David Bowie, The Police, Tears for Fears, and Phil Collins. Mm. And I went with that piece of information, I went back and listened to a couple of more songs today before the show. And I was like, okay, I could they definitely have a huge 80s influence. The problem being, for my ears anyway, they're not trying to get, you know, some middle-aged aging punk rocker to buy their records. I'm not their demographic. But if they were to have the kind of engineers and the kind of musical instruments in popular use in the 80s, they would definitely sound a lot more like Talking Heads, David Bowie. Yeah. But, but drum sounds, synth sounds, just overall production is way different in 2023 than it was in 1983. Yes. My verdict on this song, no, throw it in the garbage. I never want to hear it again. Ever, ever, <laughs> ever, ever. Um, but as a band, as a whole... I'll say they're okay, and if they pop up on my Spotify algorithm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hit forward unless it's this song. Uh, well, I would, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. I find them uh, I find them pretty harmless. Mm. Harmless but annoying. So uh, I'll I'll stick by that. Okay. Yeah. Shut up and never play the song again. <laughs> All right, Jeff, before we wrap up the show, we do have the answer coming up to my Uh, very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. What car company was the first to utilize the V8 engine? And they, coincidentally enough, were also the same car company that had the fully enclosed cabin for the driver and passengers. Ah, so it was the second part of that question that gives me my answer. And my answer to that question is Cadillac. Ding, 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 one in a row. One in a row. Now, yep. had you kept the enclosed cabin part of it out of the question, I would yep. have. I probably would have guessed Buick, because Buick also had a really well-known V8 in the early days of automobiling, but I wasn't sure if it was before or after Cadillac, and I knew Cadillac had the first enclosed cabin. You got a hit and you win. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. First show of the year. Whoa, whoa. All right. We'll see you back here in seven days, guys. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. All right. Bye, guys. A special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, but this week was way better last year. You know, you can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. What's that, girl? You should subscribe to Twibbly and tell your friends. Oh, wait. Never mind. It's just that Timmy kid stuck in the old mineshaft again. Don't be like Timmy. Subscribe to Twibbly, and your dog can listen too.